Please note, if you're listening to this, you must be 18 years of age or older. This podcast contains adult themes and may include descriptions that listeners could find offensive. Thank you. Everything is somebody's fetish. Tim Pratt. Welcome to the Kinky Nerdy Polly Podcast. This is episode 18. Hello, this is G. This is M. And today we're going to be talking about fetishes. And we're, in fact, answering... Answering a question? Answering a question that Felicity sent in a very long time ago. (laughs) And... Felicity had asked a couple of questions. Yes. We had answered one of them. Now we're going to answer the other one. Yes. The first question that we answered was about... Uh, Building queer and polyamorous relationships. Yes. Which, if we were professional podcasters, we could guess give you the episode number off the top of our head, but we aren't, and we didn't. We're more professional now, though. We are more professional now. We have a little microphone arm, yeah, so weird random noises won't be transmitting into the microphone. But what is Felicity's other question? What is Felicity's other question exactly? I think it was about, well, you said the topic was on fetishes and fetishization. Yes. They wanted us to talk about fetishes and fetishization, and specifically to also address the concept of unwanted fetishization. That is the topic that we're going to be diving into today, so let's get into it. Before... We really start getting into the meat of the topic. I wanted to bring up the dictionary definition of fetish. So I did a little bit of research before this episode, and I I pulled out the Merriam-Webster definition, which the one most pertaining to what we're going to be talking about is an object or bodily part whose real or fantasized presence is psychologically necessary for sexual gratification And that is an object of fixation to the extent that it may interfere with complete sexual expression. That was the definition that was most pertaining to our topic. Yes. When people think of fetish. But this is actually the third definition that was listed. So it wasn't even the first one. That doesn't surprise me. I found the other definitions to be really interesting. Actually, G. Why don't you? The first two definitions are as follows. The first one is an object such as a small stone carving of an animal believed to have magical power to protect or aid its owner. More broadly, a material object regarded with superstitious or extravagant trust or reverence. And then the second definition was an object of irrational reverence or obsessive devotion. So I really liked those two definitions uh, because they kind of take the sexual component out of it. Well, I think, broadly speaking, they're probably antecedents to the current definition. Well, right. the more sexual definition. More sexual definition, yeah. Which is the one that a lot of people think of when they think fetish today. Yes. So as an asexual person, the two definitions that I just read about are more kind of in line with my experience in some ways, because they do lack that sexual component. And also, like, fetishes don't have to be necessarily sexual like there are definitely ace people who have fetishes yeah i feel like the dictionary definition is a very sort of clinical term 
I believe that this sort of definition in the dictionary is much more sort of how psychologists see fetish Mm -hmm. rather than how people talk about fetish. Right. Which I think are very different things. Much like the way that a doctor talks about a vagina is very different from how a layperson talks about a vagina. For some laypeople. For some laypeople, yes. Probably I, I've actually been told by some of my partners that I speak very clinically even in regards to those things. But, yeah, this is not necessarily how people who actually have fetishes might talk about their experience. Yeah, I think one thing that we both sort of keyed in on is that a fetish doesn't necessarily have to be an object or a body part. I think the example I brought up was exhibitionism. Right. Like, I can't imagine that not being a fetish. The desire to either expose yourself or to have sex in public, that seems like a fetish to me. But according to this dictionary definition, that's not the case because it is not an object or a body part. I definitely think of exhibitionism a little bit more like I think about kink. Okay. But I think people who experience, like they are an exhibitionist, they might very well consider that a fetish. And I wanted to also talk about just the object versus not object thing a little bit, because when I think about objects or body part related fetishes, things that come to mind are like foot fetish, boot fetish, balloon fetish, uh, which is definitely a thing. But there are other fetishes that people might refer to as fetishes, like I have a friend who is into tickling, so tickling fetish. But that can also be seen as, because it's more actionable, there's like an active component. Those are also more likely framed as a kink. So that's why like exhibitionism for me, I do almost in my head want to categorize it as a kink as opposed to a fetish. But I can see an argument for either. So it's interesting you make that distinction between like kink and fetish. Before we started recording, I was talking to you like, what actually is the difference between play and a fetish? Is not knife play like... I fetishize the sensation of a knife being dragged across my skin. And you you sort of responded with, can you say it? Because you're probably going to say it better than I can. Yeah, so a play can involve a fetish. So for example, you can do a foot play scene where yeah. the foot becomes part, you know, there's the fetish component of it, like you're fetishizing the foot, but a fetish itself doesn't need to be active. It doesn't need to be part of a play or scene. It could just be a passive experience like, I can just be looking at your feet and be like, oh, I'm really into your feet in particular. I don't have to be acting on that necessarily. So it's like sort of in that definition that we brought up, it says, or whose real or fantasized presence kind of does this thing. So play, when you actually play with someone, it can involve a fetish, but um, it doesn't necessarily have to. Okay. So it seems like to a certain extent we're kind of... And correct me if I'm wrong, which I might be. So it seems like to a certain extent we're defining fetishes slightly differently from each other. You seem to think of it as like the passive... It can also be active, though. It That's can also be, it active, also be active. Yeah, but it doesn't but... necessitate any kind of like actionable thing. Okay. Again, going back to the knife play example, like it's hard for me to imagine going through a knife play scene without in some way like fetishizing some aspect of it. It's either you like... The sensation of the knife being dragged across your skin, or you like the fear play, and then that case you're fetishizing like the sensation of fear in your mind. So I guess that's sort of what I'm seeing as kind of like the difference between us. And I think that's fine. There are a lot of people who say like, oh, I fetishize DS, right? You can say that, or you can say I fetishize playing with knives or whatever. 
But when, again, going just back to like that core definition that because the fetishization has to do with like an object or body part or sometimes like a characteristic, like red hair, for example, which is something I'll talk more about later, just from that perspective, there is somewhat of a a divide between fetish and kink. There is an overlap as well. Like I said, like tickling can be, a lot of people might refer to tickling as a fetish, just like somebody might refer to that sensation of a knife dragging across their back as being a fetish. I think there's also like something about the intensity of the thing that often comes up. So like I enjoy knife play and it's something kinky that I engage in, but it's not a fetish for me. All right. So for me, there is a distinction. Okay, I, I can see I can see what you're saying. All right, I understand now. Uh, but I also see there's a note here in the show notes where you talk about how an object might actually be a symbol for something else. Yes. So I'm thinking about boots because I have a little bit of a boot fetish in so much that actually just looking at boots can often elicit some kind of pleasure. So that's really exciting for me. And leather is also, I think we've talked about boot blacking before, so I have all this ties to boots, leather. But... Boots are often a symbol in the kink community for power, authority. Um, They're very protective, you know, especially if they're a certain type of boot, right? They are a second skin for a lot of people. So there is sometimes an added component that maybe you're not actually fetishizing the object itself, but more of the symbol. It's representative of something that that you fetishize. And to a certain extent, we can look... You know, going back to that boot black episode, to a certain extent, the early gay BDSM community, like they fetishized the uniforms of both military and biker gangs, which is where a lot of sort of the classic fetish look comes from of like black leather and uh, hats, leather vests, leather chaps, these types of things. Yeah. So leather can often be a fetish for people like the smell of it alone can elicit feelings of pleasure. And I think that's, for me, again, the intensity of it is something that can kind of distinguish the two things in my mind almost. Like, play that involves one of my fetishes will often be a little bit more intense or arousing for me. Um, And that might be sexually arousing, might be emotionally arousing, compared to a a kinky scene where I'm not engaging with one of my fetishes, specifically. Okay. So I think... I think I may have like keyed in on like why there might be that difference between you and me. Because while I am a switch, for the most part, that I top. When I'm topping an activity, it's generally something I really enjoy. And I have bottomed a couple of times. And while I... Like, I've bottomed a rope a couple of times. And I definitely don't fetishize rope. Uh, so I think... You can see where I'm coming yeah, from. Yeah, I can yeah. see where you're coming from with that. So some things are just like kinky good fun, like, okay, I I enjoy tying people up. Some people, when they do rope, they actually really fetishize the rope. They're like, oh, this rope is really hot. Or they fetishize like that restrictiveness, right? Or something like that. For me, I would say that like rope is not explicitly a fetish for myself. Maybe some of the things that I do with rope might be a fetish. All right. Oh, one thing that I found out while doing research for this episode was there's actually been examples of fetishization in other species that are not humans. The two examples I came across, one of which reminded me of the other, the first one that I came across was the chimpanzee who was recorded as having a sexual fetish for rubber boots. 
This is fascinating. So I saw this in the show notes and I had never heard this before. Yeah, so apparently this chimpanzee, who, which was born and raised in a zoo, whenever a rubber boot came into its presence, it would come up, look at the rubber boot, and would become sexually aroused and eventually come over the boot. They don't use that in the article I found, but that's essentially what, what, the, what the chimpanzee does. And it did not matter to the chimpanzee whether the boot was on a human being or not. So it could just be okay, yep. a boot by itself, or it could be a rubber boot on somebody. So I'm kind of going back to that passive versus active thing. Yeah. This reminded me of a episode of 99% Invisible I'd listened to, where they referenced a heron who was raised by a human keeper, and they're trying to do a conservation project to save the species, and this heron only became sexually, not aroused, but sexually active when it saw another human being who was similar to the keeper that raised the heron. That's pretty incredible. I would, would if you're interested in this at all, like, it's a very fascinating episode to listen to. It's kind of a musical episode because it's it's a recording of a live show where they, like, sing the story of this heron. Okay, interesting. And how this guy basically spent three years with his heron trying to get it rehabilitated yeah well no he was trying to get it to oh to i see yeah he was trying to get it to uh i guess uh fertilize eggs okay Uh, i'm sorry it's been a little while since i listened to the episode or get to lay eggs but basically had to get like sexually excited so he had to do like this heron dance with the heron which the heron would do with him gotcha and they actually managed to successfully save that species. That's partially, wow. Partially due to this human, like, helping this heron out That's with his amazing. human fetish. Wow. That's pretty cool. While you were talking, that just made me think about uh, anthropology. And I had spoken to an anthropologist once about why do we have fetishes? Which, now that I know, like, that it also occurs in, like, animals, other animals besides humans pretty interesting because the one of the answers one of the theories behind why we might actually have fetishes or kinks is that it leads to sexual diversity and actually that's very beneficial because the ability to get aroused by a variety of things can like help to also diversify our gene pool that makes a certain amount of evolutionary sense given that people who become inbred eventually die out so it makes sense that there would be a sort of evolutionary push towards diversity and fetishization. Yeah, it's super fascinating to me. And I think also coming from a non-sexual standpoint, if I were going to pull it back to that thing too, is like also diversity in other things. Because I'm in a kinky ace group and I think it's beneficial to get to know people who like, this is the thing that you're coming kind of coming together about is like your fetish. You meet different people who are into all different sorts of things and you connect with people who have different backgrounds and everything like that. And so even from a non-sexual standpoint, you're just diversifying your experiences because you're really freaking passionate about this thing. There's always this thing about fetishes like, oh, it's so weird. I have this fetish, right? You see this all the time. Yeah. And then you start to see people being like, oh, that's not weird. I have that too. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like the internet has been a real boon for this. It's no longer a bunch of people like... I have this fetish and I was like, I don't know what to do about it because obviously I'm the only one who has it. 
But now thanks to the internet, these people can now sort of, oh, like, you like feet? I love feet. Like, right. Exactly. You like balloons? I like balloons. <laughs> yeah. So I guess next up we want to talk about consensual fetishization. Right. Before we get into the heavy topic. Before we get into the heavy topic, yeah. So I would say like consensual fetishization generally happens within the context of a negotiated scene and a negotiated relationship or etc. Um, and like any other kink, like any other activity that you do with your partner or with your friends or whatever it is, you should negotiate it. You should talk about it. Yeah. And I know it can be difficult for people because I see a lot of people, again, going back to the internet, posting these groups like, how do I bring up that I'm into this thing? This is so weird. How do I bring up love with my partner? I really want to do this thing with them. And do I do I have to be into it like a fetish as well for my partner to do this thing with me? Like they're really into tickling, but I'm not really into tickling. To what extent do I have to be excited by this, right? How do you feel? Like if I were to come to you, G, and be like, I'm really into balloons. Okay. We'll go to this example. Yeah. He once asked me, if I could theoretically imagine myself in the position of someone who fetishizes balloons. Yes. And I said, yes, of course. All right. If I came to you and I was like, I really am into balloons. All right. And I want to do something with you with balloons. Mm -hmm. How would you, how would we negotiate that? Well, I think that largely depends on what kind of scene you want. Because I've actually encountered a some, it's not the same, but a somewhat similar situation. In that my partner T really likes wax. And I, I was like, oh, well, I'm happy to do this thing for you, to do this, to top you with wax. I did some research, got the candles, and... Can you just, actually, can we insert a little thing? Just in case there's any listeners who don't know what wax play is. Oh, yes. Can you just briefly explain it, G? Yeah, so wax play is literally like using hot wax, usually from a... Let's see if I can remember this, given it's been a very long time. Usually like uh, soy candles, if I remember correctly. I think soy are one one version that you can use because they're not as hot as other okay. uh, versions. But there's also ones that are a little bit more intense. So there's levels of intensity depending on the type of wax. Yeah. So essentially a wax play is using some form of wax. It could be candles or it could be a crock pot filled with wax. Well, which you can drip onto, but the sensation of sort of letting hot wax drip onto your skin and having it cool on your skin. Now, part of the issue here is that I have tried wax play a couple of times and I have never enjoyed the sensation of wax on my skin because it just feels itchy to me. It doesn't feel pleasant or warm. It just feels itchy. So it's hard for me to imagine like what kind of uh, sensation you're getting from this mm -hmm. and also t really wanted me to to like really sort of dominate the scene this was closer to the beginning of our relationship and i just wasn't i couldn't like really like get into the headspace of dominating her with this wax like i can't comprehend like what you're getting out of this and the like the best i can do right now is like service topping which wasn't what she wanted from the scene so it would really depend on what kind of scene you wanted. Right. Like if you wanted me to also be like truly enjoying the balloon as much as you, I don't think I could do that. Right. But if you told me it's like, if you, if you came up to me, it's like, gee, 
I really need you to blow up a balloon until it pops right in front of my face. And I'd be like, yeah, I can do that. Right. But if you came up to me and was like, gee, I need you to... I'm trying to think of a similar example with a balloon. Uh, I need you to, like, encase yourself in a balloon. And I need you to really, like, roll around in it like you enjoy it. And I need you to, like, see the same enjoyment that I would get out of it. Right. I'd be like, I'm not sure if I can do that. Right. Like, I may be able to, like, blow up a balloon and, like, enter the balloon. Like, I can do that part. But, like... Showing, like, obvious enjoyment, like, I'm probably just going to be, like, mildly befuddled. Yeah. You make a good point. So all of this can be negotiated. That's why talking to people is really important. And just because your partner might not be able to, like, fully enjoy it, if you are okay with them just being kind of, like, passively involved, then go for it. If you do need them to be more involved and they don't necessarily want to be involved to that level, that's okay. Maybe you can find a compromise or maybe there's someone else. If you are polyamorous or you are open to some degree, maybe you can find someone else who shares that fetish with you. Yeah. Or instead of like, ask me to roll around the balloons, like, sorry, we're fixating on this balloon. But it's like, it's the example I liked. It's like, all right, I want you to help me blow up this balloon and I want us to like cuddle inside the balloon together. I'd be like, okay, I'm down for that. Like, I like cuddling you. You like cuddling me. And apparently you really love this balloon. Right. So there's definitely different ways to approach things and the intention and what the goal is out of each scene as well, as you've said, G, is important. So I think those were good good examples. I know for me personally, just to give my own anecdote, because you gave an example with T, with X, X is a super masochist. So in a way, again, going back to fetish versus non-fetish, but still kinky, I would say that X definitely fetishizes pain. All right pain for him is that intense sort of thing that is he's a real physical masochist and i am not a physical sadist Sadist. i am not but i do enjoy other aspects of engaging in that scene so i can kind of relate to your thing with t but x and i have been able to compromise too on like you know to what level do we want to go with this thing what am i comfortable with in terms of engaging with that So there is definitely a level. But I think some fetishes are just harder to talk about. Yes. And some kinks are harder to to talk about. So I know some people are really into crying. Like crying is kind of a fetish for them. Tears are a fetish. That can be sometimes, that might be something that's a little bit harder to discuss with your partner. Yeah, I mean, also it's hard. Some fetishes are just kind of hard to describe. Right. I knew somebody once a long time ago who told me that their fetish was the face of someone right before they sneeze. That's great. Which I found interesting because, you know, I'd never heard that before. But I imagine that's hard to like, yeah, I just imagine that's hard to like bring up like in a conversation. But that's why it's good to like have these sort of like, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about sexual kinks or just kinks and fetishes and we're just going to have like a nice direct conversation about it instead of dancing around like a lot of people do right absolutely that reminds me of another fetish that i have had friends who have enjoyed which is and again it can be one of those things that's hard to describe being into somebody who's really full so this is not the same thing as like wanting to feed them but just the idea of like wow they've just eaten and now they're really full and they're like maybe bloated Okay. And I've had 
friends who have been into that. Right. And um, I think that's awesome. And maybe this goes back to like, as we were talking about fetish versus like, not fetish or whatever is like, maybe fetish can also be more specific. Because like, bondage can be a kink, right? But that's kind of a broad term. Yes. Whereas like, if you hone in on like, I'm really into jute rope specifically, like the smell of the jute rope and the way that it makes me feel or whatever. And I think that can be equated to like, you know, how you were saying that face right before somebody sneezes, that's kind of like a very specific moment. It's kind of honing in on this, this thing. Okay. Yeah. So this is another thing that I think can maybe help to, and again, they can overlap. Something can be a fetish and a kink. It can be separate things. Yeah. So let's see if this metaphor makes sense now that I'm thinking about it, because who knows? It seems like play could be a genre. Impact play, knife play. There's a lot of things that can go into it. Mm-hmm. A fetish is like a movement, like the romantics or something along those lines. That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, maybe even more specific, like even get maybe even more specific in there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that. Like I was thinking like a scene could be a book, but we could just be like a fetish is a book and then a scene is like a paragraph within that book. Mm-hmm. So we could do that. As like well, a metaphor. I, for me, it would go a little bit opposite because a scene, a scene is not necessarily encased in the fetish. Okay. So I wouldn't say that scene is smaller because a scene for me, I can do a scene where none of my fetishes are involved. All right. Yeah. Right. So, um, but a fetish can be involved in a scene. So like foot play, feet can be a fetish for someone and it can also be something that is the focus of the scene, the play. Okay. I don't think we can ever get to a perfect metaphor, to be honest. But I think that was a good try. All right. So I think now we're going to issue our content warning. Because now we're going to be talking about non-consensual fetishization. And so we're so, going to give a nice little countdown. Just broad topics that we're going to bring up. Definitely fetishization in general. In specific, there might be extra need to warn for mentions of race and transness. And maybe even sexuality. Other things like that. Yeah. And I think this is going to take up the rest of the episode, as far as I can tell from the show notes. So if you want to skip over this and just listen to the stinger, you're welcome to do that. And I will leave a time mark in the show notes. So three, two, one. So this is getting into the meat of the topic, the heavy part of our discussion. So we've, we've been talking about how a lot of fetishes revolve around a specific body part or other particular characteristics of a person. So I'll start with the easy one, which is related to my experience, um, which has to do with hair color. Yes. Uh, so I've mentioned this before on an episode that I am a redhead, and there is a lot of fetishization around redheads, uh, red hair. So I know that, you know, in the past, I've um, been with partners who have said things as far as like I collect redheads. Oh, that's not gross at all. <laughs> yeah. So I will admit this. You talking about this does make me feel a little bit squirmy. Yes. Uh, because I also really find redheads attractive, but I have also never said that you collect them. That I collect redheads. Well, that's a that's another part of this. It's okay to have these certain preferences. For some reasons, some people are just really attracted to redheads. And that's okay. I'm okay if you really like my hair. Or if you really find it hot. That's cool. That's great. That's awesome. But... You are not your hair. I am not my hair. That's right. And there are also some 
some fetishization around it, not so much in just the aesthetic fetishization, but also like that um, stereotype of like, oh, redheads are really feisty, um, kind of like, you know, playing on that sort of thing. They're like, they need to be tamed. This is another thing that frequently goes with redheads. Yeah. So I've gotten all of that. And I want to say too that, yes, it does make me uncomfortable to be fetishized for my hair when it's unwelcome. If I've negotiated it, if someone's really into my hair and they're like, I really want to like play with your hair and just comment about how awesome it makes me feel for an entire scene. Great. Let's negotiate that. But it has made me uncomfortable when it's been unwelcome and it's been non-consensual. And I want to acknowledge that some of the other things that we're going to talk about involve added layers, added dimensions. Yes. So while it is uncomfortable, it's definitely not at the level of some other things that can happen. So everyone can also feel, because it's, it's not like a competition of what's the most uncomfortable, but hair is not necessarily the same level of dynamics that are involved as like skin color. And that is the big one. That's the big one. So I think I'm going to take lead in this part of the conversation because I am actually of Asian descent. And I, while I do acknowledge that I have the ability to pass as white or pass as we don't know what you are, uh, I am also very aware of the various stereotypes that surround Asian sexuality. And obviously, there are other <laughs> other groups out there. Uh, I feel it's best, and I want to acknowledge that those, those groups have their own issues, uh, but I feel like it's best for us that we just talk about the issues that are silly to me, and maybe at some point we can get somebody who wants to talk about those issues on another episode of the podcast. But being of Asian descent, I think, especially being AMAB, like one of the things I'm very aware of is, for the most part, the stereotype around Asian men is that they are uh, not asexual, but kind of like sexual inferiors. Like they're not quite as, uh, and it's really hard to describe. Like they're just not quite as good as, I mean, let's face it, in the media, it's white guys. Like they're just not quite, they can't just like quite cut it as in the media. And, it's a very frustrating stereotype uh, to have to deal with. And there are other stereotypes which which affect Asian women. And like a lot of stereotypes, it kind of got you coming and they got you going. Like no matter how you act, which way they want you to act, like they've got a stereotype to fit you. So you've kind of got like the Asian flower stereotype where it's like, oh, this is a delicate flower who's pure and must be cared for. On the other hand, you've got the dragon lady stereotype, which is, you know, very sort of dominating, uh, uh, usually a villain in a movie who's very sort of sexually forward. And these stereotypes are not where they really come into play. I feel like is online dating because oftentimes I've seen people on their online dating profiles say like they're looking for somebody who is of a certain uh, skin color. And I've talked with people who have been on the receiving end of those messages where it's like, I love the fact that you're Asian and, you know, using some derogatory terms like yellow skinned. And, you know, there's sort of like the expectation of submissiveness. And it's real frustrating because it's like, I am, I am more 
than my ethnicity. Right. Uh, and I don't deal with the full brunt of this because I am multi-ethnic. I've got a lot of ethnicities going on. But with people who look more East Asian, because uh, that's usually what people think of when, like, they don't think of India as a part of Asia. They, they're usually just thinking of, like, East Asian, Chinese, Japanese, nothing about the Philippines or Thailand. It's, it can get real frustrating real fast. How people will just be dismissive of you just because of your ethnicity. Yeah, that sounds really frustrating. I definitely haven't had to deal with that, so... Again, I have not had to deal with the full brunt of it, because again, I do have that sort of passing privilege of, I don't know what you are, but... But it can still happen to you, and that also poses different challenges for you. Yeah. So it's definitely, you know, like, no one wins, for sure. Yes. I wanted to, if it's okay, just jump back to my own experience as well. It's not related to um, ethnicity or race, but... Um, one area that does get tricky for me is being trans and being a trans guy. So there's in the trans community, there's definitely some fetishization, both of trans women, trans men and non-binary people. There's a lot of it going around. And the same can be said for like fetishization of sexuality as well. So in terms of the transness, there is kind of like that idea of both both straight men and gay men can fetishize uh, trans guys for different reasons. Or, I mean, and women can do it as well, but just my personal experience has come mostly from men. And for the straight man, a lot of the fetishization is like, I can do this thing with a guy, but he's not really a guy. So it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I can I can see the, the logic in that. Right. I mean, it's terrible logic, but yeah. And in the gay scene... I mean, it's a little bit harder being, because I, I consider myself sort of gay and ace, and I know that in that community, in the gay community, it's either, like, you don't have sex with trans guys because, like, oh, they're not real men or whatever, or you do, and it's because you're fetishizing them. <laughs> and obviously that's not all straight men, that's not all gay men, mm -hmm. um, but I have personally encountered those sorts of things, so... Being trans can add uh, this level of fetishization as well. And then there's the added, like, layer of being different or other in some way. That in itself can be fetishized. Yeah, there's a reason why Orientalism was a thing. Like, so here's the thing. I remember, so do you know who Tina Fey is? Like, vaguely. Okay. She's an SNL. She was on 30 Rock. Anyway, I liked her as a comedian. But I did not really find her attractive until she was in the Muppet movie and she was speaking in a Russian accent. <laughs> so, you know, there is a real sort of like fetishization of the other, uh, yes. of, of outsiders. Of something that's novel, new, different, yeah. foreign, yep. And you need to be real careful around that because a person who is in an out group probably doesn't want to be reminded that they're in an out group by their partner, whatever kind of partner that may be. Right. So, yeah. I think that's a good point. I also want to go back to race and ethnicity only briefly, and I cannot speak from my own experience with this, but I, what I do want to say is there are people who engage in race play. So we talked about play earlier. Yep. And I have talked to people 
from all different backgrounds who are into this type of play. And I also got to see Ariane Cruz um, speak at Penn State about um, race play, which was a really amazing experience. And she's written, uh, you know, she's an academic who specifically talks about that sort of play. So I've been able to gain some insights from other people, both people who are engaging in the play, um, just from in the scene, to more academic perspective. And what I want to say is, if that's your play, regardless of your race, if that's the thing that you're really into, awesome. I'm not going to judge you for that. And I think people should be able to engage in the type of play generally, as long as everybody is consenting and it has been negotiated. But what I want to say is, please be careful. Know that there are added dynamics that are going on and that you should be able to really reflect on why you are engaging in that type of play and make sure that you always have like the comfort and safety of your partner in mind. Yes. That's my piece. As a, as a little addendum to that, I think, I think if you're going to do some sort of race play scene, that's really something that you should do somewhere either in like the privacy of your own home or with like a group that is all consenting consenting to to see that scene. So it's not something that I feel like you should just spring upon your local club or house party without letting people know that it's going to happen. Well, that's why I said like that it should be as long as everybody's consenting about it. And with things like race play and other related types of play that involve these sort of stronger, more more uh, dynamic things that are going on, absolutely getting like third party consent can be really important. Yeah. Because you never know uh, how someone might. You know, if they unexpectedly walk in and see that scene and they didn't, you know. So I agree with you that that's a good note. So on a final note, uh, we've been talking a lot about fetishes and unwanted fetishization. And I think it's important, you know, if you're having any sort of qualms about your fetishes, even if they're what we would consider to be sort of more taboo fetishes. You know, I have a fetish for red hair. M has red hair. I have a fetish for M's red hair, but that fetish does not eclipse the person that is M. I love M for being nerdy and kind of weird and being really into linguistics and for being Buddhist. There are all these parts of M that I love that is not his red hair. And I think if you have a fetish, it's okay to have that fetish as long as you remember there is a person and they are just not a receptacle for your fetish desires. They are a person that has their own wants and needs and fetishes of their own that they might want fulfilled. So yeah, I guess that's what I want to be the final note, at least my final note. Oh, I think that's a perfect final note, G. And I think you said it well. I like the idea of don't let that eclipse the person. That is not the totality of the person, which is that theme that's kind of been running throughout this episode. So I think that was just about it. Yeah. Well, this is M. This is G. Don't be afraid to love how you love. Love what you love. And love who you love. If you'd like to get in touch with either M or myself, you can tweet us at KMP Podcast. You can find us at knppodcast.tumblr.com or you can email us at kinky.nerdy.poly at gmail.com. So, 
do we have we talked about Tasha? Oh, Tasha. Have we talked about oh, it hearts. in the pre-talk? I don't think so. All right. Listeners, I want to tell you a story. Oh, jeez. Gather around. Gather around. Huddle around the digital campfire, which is your which is your smartphone. Uh, so, I get a text from M early in the morning telling me, Tasha's gone. And I have no idea who M is talking about. I am racking my brain trying to figure out who the hell Tasha is. Because obviously Em expects me to know this person. Because just says the name, Tasha. So, after a few minutes, I just convince, I just, well, I'm just a horrible person. I don't remember this person who has apparently died. So, uh, I just have to express my condolences and try to text my way into figuring out who it is. So I say, oh, I'm sorry. You know, how, what happened? And M texts back to me, Tasha got eaten by a tar monster. (laughs) (laughs) She did, though, and it was sad. 